name is Adam, and I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning, whether you're joining us here uh, in any of our physical campuses or online at our online campus. It's exciting to be with you as we wrap up the final week of our series titled, I've Got Questions. And over the last month, the month of February, what we've been doing is we've been looking at one thing, the Bible, Scripture, and what it has to say about itself. And what we've done is we've taken a look at this book that for, for centuries, for years, has uh, kind of polarized people. People either love it or they hate it and they despise it. Or maybe you're even in the middle and you're like, I want to love it, but I don't know, I don't understand. And so what we've done is over the past month, we've just been taking some time and looking at some of our common questions, our common objectives, and our, our common struggles we have around this book called the Bible. And throughout the course of this month, you've been answering or submitting questions, and you've been texting them in, and we have gathered all of those, and today is going to feel a little bit different, because instead of a, what would be like a normal message where we kind of have one major theme that runs from beginning to end, it's going to feel more like a dog chasing a squirrel. So those of you that like have ADHD, this is the day for you, okay? Because we're going to like bounce from topic to topic, and it's going to be shorter, and you're going to love this. But what we're going to do is we're going to take some time and just answer some of those questions. Now, why are we doing this? Because as a Christ follower, as a Christian, I believe, and maybe you do as well, that the Bible is central to my faith. It is the sole place that I find wisdom and insight and the character and the nature of God and how that applies to my life and how I live it out. I, I honestly believe with everything in me that every question I have about life, whether I am able to vocalize it or not, the answer is found within the pages of scripture. It is the source of everything I need to understand and follow God and Jesus. It's central to my faith. Now, this is why the Bible says this about itself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. It is central to our faith. But despite its centrality, despite its location in the middle of everything we believe and know about God and Jesus, there's still a lot of confusion around. There's still a lot of complications. There's still a lot of struggle. And so what we've done is over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Bible to hopefully, in a way, whether you are a follower of Jesus or maybe you are here for the very first time, to kind of remove some of those questions and those objectives and those struggles that we might have with it. And if you've been here with us, this is a quick recap. We've said from the very beginning that the Bible, despite being 66 different books written by 40 different authors, Spanning a penmanship time of over 1,500 years, written in three different original languages covering three different continents, despite all of that diversity, despite all of that variance, what we find is over and over and over again, the Bible as a collection of books and ancient manuscripts tells one consistent story from beginning to end, from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, that there is a God who loves us and pursues humanity so much that he will do anything and everything to rescue and redeem them. Now, we also said that the Bible is one of the oldest ancient manuscripts that we have. 
It's a book that is old, it's, it's dated. And so there is sometimes a little skepticism about whether it's really true because of the way that uh, histories were passed down before we had printing presses and they were oral traditions that were spread from person to person and then they were copied by paid scribes who could interject anything they wanted at any moment and to begin to change the tr- manuscripts. And what we said is we said, if we look at the Bible that we have in our hands today, the document that we can read, the document that we can download on our phones, it is the most accurate and reliable ancient document that has ever existed in the history of the world. We have an exponential amount of manuscripts about it and they go almost to the very writing itself. It's accurate and it's reliable and it's true. And so this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna answer some of the questions that you have submitted. And first, just to kind of lay some ground rules, I just need to let you know that there were a a ton of questions submitted, like really, really good questions. And I I obviously can't tackle all of them. We would be here till next week trying to tackle all of them. And so what I had to do was pick the ones that I, I wanted to tackle that I thought were the most applicable to the series. And so what that means is if you submitted a question that was about something in the Bible, we're gonna skip that and focus on more of the questions that are about the actual Bible. What do I mean by that? Maybe you submitted a question about what does the Bible say about same-sex attraction and transgenderism? Maybe you submitted a question about what does the Bible say about men and women and their roles in ministry within the church? Or maybe you sent a question in about what does the, di- the Bible say about dinosaurs or all of these different topics. And while those are, are fascinating questions that I wish wish we had the time to answer, I'm going to limit it to the ones that really are more about the Bible the way we have it today. And the second thing, the ground rule is this. As we answer these questions, I will try my best to answer them in one of three ways. Uh, If the Bible, if scripture is 100% clear on an answer, I will just tell you that and I will say, here's what scripture says and that's what it says. If scripture gives us not a very clear answer, but maybe it gives us some context from somewhere that can be kind of applied to it, the application, I'll tell you that, that Paul or whoever is writing about something here, but it applies to what we're talking about. And thirdly, if I can't find anywhere in scripture that answers the questions because we are talking about kind of the the history of the Bible, they're not always there, I'll give you my opinion. Now, it is simply my opinion. It is my opinion. You can take it as you want, believe it or not, but just know if you choose not to believe it, you are wrong and I am always right. That is your choice. You can leave here wrong, that's fine. So let's dive in. The first question, uh, there were several questions related to what is called the canon of scripture. And before we kind of put the question up, uh, the, the word canon of scripture is a theological term that scholars use to describe the, the number of books and the books that are actually listed in the Bible. For instance, the, the canon of scripture would basically be a fancy theological term for describing the, the table of contents of in the, the Bible. And so the question that's being asked is this, is the question is, how do we know what books are in the Bible and after true? So here, I'll just give you, how do we get the current list of 66 books that we have in our Bible? And who decided those were the official ones? Now, the difficulty in answering this question is there's nowhere in the 66 books of scripture that says, these are the books of the Bible. It would have been amazing if God would have just said, include these books and get rid of everything else. It's very clear, but God didn't do that. I can't point you to a spot in the Bible where God says, this is the table of contents for my word to humanity. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about how we got the books of the Bible. 
Let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament has been around much longer, and so the the canon was sort of finalized much sooner. In fact, the canon of the Old Testament, most scholars, not all, but most Hebrew scholars, people who, who study the Old Testament intently, they would say that the canon of the Old Testament was finalized around the year 150 BC. Now, for context, that's 150 years or so before the birth of Jesus, almost 200 years before his death and resurrection and the, the founding of the New Testament church. So it had been around a while by the time Jesus and his disciples began doing their ministry in first century Jerusalem. Now, the canon of the Old Testament for centuries has been pretty much finalized. While it was finalized in 150, uh, most scholars would say dating all the way back to about 400 BC or 450 BC is when it really kind of got finalized and there was just a couple disputes that they were talking about until you hit the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, we have these books, and somebody asked the question about these books. These books called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are basically books that are in the Old Testament canon for a certain group or sect of Christianity, but not the rest. And these books are ones that most scholars throughout history would say those are incredibly insightful books of church history. They give us insight into the the history of what happened to the Jewish people. They, They tell us what they went through, their struggles, their commonalities, and all these things about them. But when we read those books, they don't seem inspired. They don't seem to be authoritative and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking the way scripture says that the divine word of God should be. And so for centuries, these extra additional Old Testament books were kind of just there as a supplemental resource until you hit the 1500s. And in the 1500s, when reformers by the name of Martin Luther and John Huss and all these other guys began to speak out about some of the non, like kind of the indulgent non-biblical practices of the Catholic Church and what they were doing, the Catholic Church formed this thing called the Council of Trent. And what they did is as a reaction to Martin Luther and the reformers, they decided that some of the the practices that we have been using are from these kind of additional non-canonical books. And what we want to do is we want to make them official so that we can say our practices are scriptural and biblical and therefore consistent with the word of God. So they added them. But Protestants, those of us who are here today, we would say, that, no, no, they never should have been added. And so the Old Testament that we hold in our hands, the one that we would read if we're not a Catholic person, we would say that the Old Testament that we have has been pretty much unchanged for about the last 2,500 years. It's consistent Not only this, the books that were excluded from them, there was a major reason why. In fact, they looked back at the New Testament and as they they studied the teachings of Jesus and as they studied the teachings of the disciples and the apostles and the letters that went out and how the the new church began to be formed, they asked the question, if, if these books were so popular, if they were such inspired in the use and the word of God, then we would see references to them in the writings of the New Testament. And what they found, and this this astonishes me, of the 300 references to the Old Testament found in the New Testament. So every time the the New Testament speaks to the Old, about 300 times, it covers almost every single book of the Old Testament, but not once covers the Apocrypha. So what you see is the early church, the first century Jewish people, right, because Jesus and his followers were Jewish in the beginning, they never quoted these books that were excluded. Why? Because to them, they weren't inspired. 
They weren't the word of God. They were just extra books that were there. And so this brings us to the New Testament. And the New Testament had a much harder time being formed. The books that we have now is much different. And so what historians have done is they came up with these four criteria. And you're going to see these on the screen behind me. These four criteria say this. Was the book written by or accepted by an eyewitness? What was the book as it was written, as the letter that we have it, was it accepted by or written by someone who saw with their very own eyes the things that it's talking about? Is the book truthful without contradictions? Does the book match up? Because if scripture is consistent from Genesis to Revelation, we would not find God all of a sudden adding in a book that makes no sense and is a complete 180. No, it would be consistent and it would be truthful and it wouldn't have contradictions. The third one, does the book show a divine capacity to transform lives? The, the early historians recognized that scripture, even when it's not preached, even when it's just read by an individual at home, it's alive. It's active. It has the power to transform lives. And they begin to ask questions about, well, these other letters, these other books, do they transform people's lives in the same way that we know these inspired words do? And the fourth thing was this, is was the book originally accepted by the audience it was written to? And they go back and they look at the history of churches in Ephesus or Corinth, and they ask them, do you have um, copies of these that you read originally? And of these, the most important criteria was the first one. Was the book written or accepted by an eyewitness to Jesus? And this was pretty easy if you think about the New Testament that we have. Considering like all of the gospels and a lot of the books of Peter and a lot of the books of John and all these other ones were written by eyewitnesses. But the red flag was always Paul, if you're familiar with scripture. Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. And the argument was, well, Paul was not an eyewitness. How can we trust him? Maybe we shouldn't include his books because he was not there. And what, they've been, what they begin to do is they begin to say, well, did the original followers, the, the original eyewitnesses, did they credit Paul's writings as being inspired and scriptural? And so how did they know this? In fact, they went and looked at the book of Peter. And I just want to read this to you. This is from 2 Peter 3, 5 through 16. And Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he says this, and remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Great statement. Then he says, this is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God had given him. Speaking of all these things in all of his letters. So he's saying like, listen, you have the letters of Paul. This is what Paul wrote to us in his letters. And now he gives this great statement. He says, some of his comments are hard to understand, right? We've all read Paul. We know he's hard to understand. He says, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something different, just as they do other parts of scripture. So what we see in an eyewitness account, the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, written only about 30 years after Jesus dies, is he's referencing Paul's writings and says they're scripture. So what you see is within 30 years of Jesus's death, the writings of Paul were already accepted by the eyewitnesses as being credible and true and inspired. And so fast forward, by the time we hit the year 170 AD, pretty much the entire New Testament that we have it now is accepted, except for about five books. There was like a first and, or third John, first and second Peter, uh, James, and Hebrews. And by the time you hit kind of like 180 AD, it's pretty much locked in, except for one book, uh, Hebrews. Hebrews took like another 200 years to be accepted because they weren't sure who wrote it, they weren't sure on the authorship. But the point is this, and this is the fascinating part. Within less than 90 years of Jesus' death, 
less than 50 years after the book of Revelation is written, the New Testament canon is pretty much finalized. For the next 1,900 years, it doesn't change until the present day, and it still hasn't changed. That is a miracle. The fact that, I mean, you, you, you guys work in an environment. Try to get that many people to agree on scripture is difficult. Try to get a bunch of Christians to agree on anything can be difficult. <laughs> but they got the early church to agree. Within 100 years, these are the books that are inspired. And here's the most important part. Regardless of what council met to decide it, regardless of what men were a part of it, God orchestrated it, right? I, I firmly believe with everything in me that yes, the early church had all these decisions on what to include and what not to include, but I know absolutely within my heart that God is sovereign in everything he does and he knew exactly what story he wanted to tell from Genesis to Revelation and he made it abundantly clear in the way that the human process of collecting those books and being orchestrated would be pulled off because he is a sovereign God. And this is why the Bible says this in Proverbs 35, 30 verse five about itself. The word of God is flawless. The Bible that we have now is exactly the way God wanted and intended it. Our, our next question is closely, kind of a closely related cousin to this one. And it deals specifically with the gospels. And this is one, as I've been kind of preaching this series and conversations with people, this is the one that people keep asking me the most. If someone wants to know, why are there only four gospels? Why do we ignore the other gospels that aren't in our Bible? And so for context here, if you were to pick up your New Testament today, you would notice that there are four gospels in the beginning, right? You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of those gospels is written to a certain audience within a certain context. Matthew's writing to Jewish people. Uh, Mark is writing to uh, Romans. And Luke is writing to Greeks. And John is kind of this universal guy who's writing to anyone and everyone who wants to read or listen. But each one has specific language and context they're writing to. And they're highlighting certain stories and missing other stories. And what we get is when we take all four of those gospels and we put them together, we get a more comprehensive, complete view of the life of Jesus and what he did. Now, even though this might seem redundant at times, taken together, they give us this complete picture. But on the flip side of it, there are tons of other gospels that are not included in our Bible. For instance, there's the gospel of Judas. There's the gospel of Peter. There's the gospel of Philip. There's the gospel of Thomas. And some of these are just bizarre. Like for instance, the gospel of Peter, uh, we encounter towards the end where when Jesus is coming out of the tomb, uh, Jesus has grown larger than Goliath. And it's this gigantic Jesus coming out of the tomb. And behind him is a walking cross telling the story of the gospel. It's just bizarre. And another one in the gospel of Judas, we see where Jesus um, is actually this kind of like mystical floating being that doesn't leave footprints when he walks and people can't touch him. And so he never really died on a cross because they tried to catch him and they just went right through him like a ghost. And we see these and they're just bizarre and they're strange. But the question is, why aren't they in our Bible? Why did we pick the four we have and not those other ones? Well, the answer here is incredibly simple. They aren't scripture because they aren't accurate. They are all written by, when they, when they studied the language of them, the names that are in them, when they've studied the context, they found out that all of them were written years later by a different group or a different sect, maybe the, the Gnostics or somebody else, and they basically just wrote something that was gonna attach itself to their beliefs and make people follow them. But instead of just writing a gospel that's like the unnamed gospel of an unknown figure, right? You can't name it that because no one wants to read it. So they would go back and attach disciples' names to them. They're like, oh, you know what? People will read this if we name it the gospel of Thomas. 
Well, obviously Thomas didn't write it if it was written in 250 AD. Thomas wasn't 300 years old when he wrote that book. And so they are not accurate, they are not true, they are kind of fakes that are kind of written later. And scripture says this in Psalm 119, 160. It says, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. In other words, one thing we can do to see if it matches with scripture is we can look at, does what it says, is it true based on the other 66 books we have? And if it's not true, it's not inspired. It's not divine. It's not authored by God himself. And so that leads to our third question. This one got asked a couple times. Should we read those books? The books that we don't have in the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas, which is really famous right now in culture, or maybe the Apocrypha that the, the Catholic Church has, should we read those? Not as, not as scripture, but maybe just historical information to help us understand things. I would just absolutely, kind of without a doubt, say no, you probably should not, unless you're in some sort of academic setting and you're really trying to learn something about them. Why do I say that? Second Peter 1 verse 3 says this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, I believe that the 66 books we have right now are everything you need to live a godly life. Those other books, while they may be fascinating reads or interesting, you don't need to read them because to say that you need them to understand more about God would mean that this is incomplete. And this is complete. This is everything you need to know to live a godly life and to know and understand the nature and character of God. What God doesn't reveal about himself in here, maybe he reveals it through nature, or maybe he's just waiting when he sees you face to face and he's gonna reveal it then. But this is complete and it is sufficient and there's not a thing in life it cannot speak to or cover. Now, our next question, uh, I know we're going fast because we've got a lot of time. So our next question comes from somebody asking, and this one came up quite a bit too, and they said, okay, like you've said several times, Adam, that the Bible is inspired. You've even read the verse from 2 Timothy that said it is, it is God-breathed. What does that mean? That's a great question. I, I was talking to someone just two weeks ago, and they said, okay, like Adam, when you say it's inspired, when you say it's God-breathed, does that mean like, like, were, were like one of the apostles or one of the disciples, were they sitting down at their desk and all of a sudden they came over like a trance and they don't even know what they were doing and they just woke up and they were like, whoa, I just pinned this, I had no idea. Or like, were they sitting down at their table and they were trying to write a letter to their mother and all of a sudden their hands started doing something else like a Ouija board and they couldn't explain it and it didn't make sense and they just looked up and said, I don't know what I'm writing, somebody help me. And their hand was kind of doing this thing all on its own. No, I don't think that. If I thought that that would be very strange and you would probably wanna go find another pastor, okay? Here's what I think. When, when, when scripture says that it is inspired, when it is God-breathed, what does that mean? And I think Peter gives us great insight into this in his second letter. Listen to this, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture or no writing in scripture, nothing that has been documented in scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, it wasn't like the apostles or the prophets or the Old Testament people sat down and said, you know what? I really wanna write a book that'll make it into scripture. 
And so I'm gonna think through this. I'm gonna plan this out. I'm gonna elaborately detail this and research this. And I'm gonna make sure I write this in such a way. No, no, he said, it's not their own interpretation. It's not them saying, okay, I saw this. Therefore, I need to write about this. It's not them kind of figuring out their facts like a researcher would working on a newspaper. No, 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 it's not that. It's not their own interpretation. What does he say? He continues verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though they were human, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along, in the Greek, it's only used one other time, and that's in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 27, 15, where Luke writes of a ship being carried along by the wind. Now, here's, here's the imagery. How, what does it mean that the Bible is inspired, that it is God-breathed? Even if the wind blows on a ship, someone's still steering it, right? Someone's still working in the sails. Someone's still doing things. They are actively engaged in the process of driving the ship, even though the wind is blowing. The wind is just the power behind it, the thing that is propelling it, the thing that is moving it. And so what Peter is saying is he's saying, when we have the words of scripture and they are inspired and they are God-breathed, it's not that these people were in a trance and don't remember or they, they just kind of blacked out in that moment. No, he's saying they were, they were fully aware which is why every book of the Bible, we see the, the literary style, the background, the language of each author being in there. It's not just one consistent type or one consistent authorial voice through the whole thing. No, no, their, their personal preferences and styles come out. But as they were doing it, as they were working on these letters, the spirit was pushing them along. It was directing their course. It was guiding them. And you say, well, how does that happen though? Like, like some of these guys, like, like John, John's writing his gospel 65 years after Jesus is dead. He's 95 years old. Now, I, I don't know about you, but a lot of the 95-year-old the people that I have a conversation with, they can't remember specific teaching and actions and experiences from when they were in their 30s. So how do we know they got it right? How do we know it's truly inspired? How do we know they didn't just kind of think, man, I think this happened, I'm not exactly sure. Listen to what Jesus says himself in John 14, 26. This is him talking about scripture. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will what? Will teach you all things and remind you of everything I said to you. And so you see, just like a boat being propelled by the wind, as they sit down to write their letter, the Holy Spirit supernaturally, through inspiration, reminded them of things they had seen and heard and experienced. So though they didn't, they didn't have to use their memory. The same way that you and I, there can be moments in our scripture or in our, in our Christian life where we have a, an experience with God and years later we come across a certain verse or hear a certain song and it pops into our head that memory of when we were a teenager or a college student or deployed somewhere, how God did something through that verse or that song. It's the Holy Spirit reminding us of his teaching and his power in our lives. It's the same concept. It's the wind directing the sails. Our next question. Our next question comes from someone who wants to know, and this is a fascinating question. When reading the Bible, how do I determine what parts are prescriptive and what parts are descriptive? 
Great question, and just, just so we're all on the same page. What they mean by this is a, a prescriptive verse in the Bible is prescribing something. It's telling you, you need to go and do X, or you need to live a certain way. A descriptive verse is a verse that describes something that happened. So the question is, how do we determine these two? Like, how do I know if what I'm reading is descriptive or prescriptive? Let me, let me give you an example of this, because the, the story of David and Goliath is a fascinating example for this. It's probably safe to assume that most of you, if not all of you, have read David and Goliath, okay? If not, here's, here's the, the kind of the high arching overview. David is this small little shepherd boy who's gonna be the future king one day, but not yet. And all of Israel is about to go into a battle, but there's this huge giant named Goliath. And Goliath is, or Goliath is standing there taunting them, be like, hey, send out your strongest guy, you're, you're puny, you're weak, your God is horrible, and they're all scared and no one wants to go, and even King Saul at the time is scared and no one wants to go. So David shows up, and David's like, furious, how, how can they allow this to happen? How can they defile the name of God? And so David says, I'll go. He's offered some armor, and David says, no, it's too big for me, I don't need armor, and he's offered a weapon, he says, I can't hold the weapon, I'm too small, like a middle school boy maybe, and so he goes out into the battle, and he picks up five smooth stones, and he goes up against this giant, and he just throws the stones, hits Goliath in the head, Goliath falls down, David grabs Goliath's swords and cut off his head. That's the story. So if we read this as a prescriptive passage, and this is how it's preached sometimes, hey man, listen, you need to go and face your giants, right? David had faith that was strong enough that God would protect him even without his armor and a weapon. And there is no giant in your life that God won't protect you from. That's prescriptive. That's also wrong. It's not even accurate. There are plenty of things that are happening in this story that have nothing to do with that. This story is descriptive. It's a story about what David did in that moment in his life. What's the application of the story? It's not to go out and to fight giants in your life with no protection and none of that, no, no. The application of the story is a compare and contrast between two kings. King Saul, the people's choice in his inability to trust God, and King David, God's choice and his full obedience to God. And ultimately the story is about the true hero, a foreshadow of Jesus, the Savior that will come and defeat the giant in all of our lives, the giant of sin and death. It's more descriptive, and it points to something else. It's not prescriptive of how you act and what you should do. So just at the very essence, the very simplicity, how can you tell the difference in these two? You have to study the context. You have to look at the type. Remember, we, we said this every week so far. Every book is a certain genre and written a certain way. And you have to make sure you understand. If it is a book that is a historical book, then it's probably descriptive. If it is a book that is a poetry book, it's probably descriptive. If it is a book of history, it's probably descriptive. But if it is a moment of teaching, if it is a letter of instruction to a future church, a known church or a former church, it's probably more prescriptive. Context matters in how you read it. And this is why I've challenged you uh, last week is to make sure when you're, you're reading scripture, know your plan. Make sure you know the context you're in. Make sure you have a, a commentary beside you. Make sure you read the notes in your study Bible because otherwise you might find yourself thinking you need to go and do something prescriptively when it's really just a description of what happened thousands of years ago and it doesn't actually mean you need to live that part out. You have to make sure you do the research. Which leads to our, our next question. Somebody asked, several people asked, why do you over and over again, Adam, say context matters in reading the Bible? 
It's a fascinating question. Great question. I'm glad you asked this. I would have answered this one even if you didn't ask this one, right? So I, I just believe that over the 2,000 years of Christianity, almost every major atrocity that has happened in our world in the name of Christianity has been because someone has taken the Bible out of context. And you're like, that's a bold statement. Yeah. Think about this. Hundreds of years ago, there were people on both sides of the argument. Slavery is not biblical. And they were using scripture. And on the same time, slave owners, slavery is biblical. And here are the scriptures that show this. And they were arguing with the Bible to prove their point. Context matters. Let me, let me just give you an example of how context matters. And this is just a fun example. Romans, what if I told you this? What if I told you that, um, that a vegetarian, that eating only vegetables was a sign that you had weak faith? Would that offend any of you? You're like, man, that doesn't make any sense. Show me proof. How, how can my uh, diet have anything to do with my faith, how strong and how weak I am? Take a look at Romans 14 2. It says this. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The Bible says it, guys. Meat equals strong faith, okay? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm joking, okay? But I could preach that. Like, I could come up here, and if you didn't have your Bible, and you weren't reading through it, and you weren't looking at it, I could come up here and do an entire sermon on the benefits of eating meat to strengthen your faith, and I could say, look, Paul says it in Romans 14, chapter 2, therefore the Bible must be true, and it's true. But context matters. If you zoom out and you look at the whole, what scholars would say, the, the pericope, the entire passage together, or the entire book, or the entire uh, testament, or the entire story, what you see is more of this when you read Romans 14, 1 through 3. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. The book, Romans, Paul is writing it to express to the church in Rome that grace is better than the law. And here he's giving them an example. He's writing to a culture, context, where the people were forced to decide do I eat this meat that has been prepared in pagan ways for sacrifices to foreign gods, or do I abstain from it? And he's saying, listen, there are some people whose faith is strong enough, they can avoid it. There are some who can't. Don't judge them. It's not about avoiding vegetables. It's not about avoiding meat. The context is about judging others and holding them yourself above them. Context matters. Context is the anchor for reading scripture. If I could impart one thing only, and just the only thing I could impart in this series, is when you pick up the Bible, don't, don't just, boom, what does this say? No, 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 no. Look at what the book is about. Look at what the chapter's about. Look at what the section of scripture, the, the pericope, the verses that are organized together, what are they saying? Because everything is in context to everything else. If you read the Bible and you say this verse doesn't make sense with all the other 66 books, then you're reading it wrong and out of context because it's consistent and it's true and it never says anything that is contradictory. It's consistent. Context matters. It's the anchor for everything. Lastly, our final question 
I've gotten asked this one quite a bit, and this is, what are some resources you would recommend for deeper study after this series? I think some of you have really enjoyed the way we have nerded out a little bit on some of the history and you wanna go a little deeper. So I'm just gonna give you a couple of these and you can take a picture of this if you want. The first one is this, I highly recommend this book. Oh, sorry, before we get there. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but up in DC is the Museum of the Bible and it's a great place to go and kind of dive into more about this. And we just wanna let you know, North Star, one of our partner networks, you can get a discount for anyone in your family. So if you just use that code, you can get 40% off at the Museum of the Bible. We would love for you to go and we're thankful for our partnership with North Star for providing that for us. And so we would encourage you to go do that and you can go into way more detail than anything I would ever know because they are brilliant compared to me. Uh, so this one, the first resource I have for you is this. A Doubter's Guide to the Bible. This is a quick little book. It's about 150, 200 pages. And the whole point of this book is to go through the meta narrative of scripture. And it's written from somebody who maybe is doubting the Bible or not sure what it's meaning, but also somebody who's maybe been walking with Jesus but understand it. And it just goes through Genesis to Revelation in a quick little way to help you understand what the whole meta narrative overarching story of the Bible is. Next resource. And this one has been around for a really long time. This is a visual theology guide to the Bible. That's not the one that's been around a long time. Sorry, that's the next one. But this one is a fascinating book. If I was gonna recommend one that you get, this would be the one. This book covers all kinds of biblical theology. It covers the story of the Bible. It covers the canon of scripture, how we got it all. It covers all that. But it's also done in infographics. So it's all about pictures and charts and numbers and visuals. So you can look at it. For those of you that are like, I don't read, but I can study a chart. It's got that for you. It's fascinating. Some of the charts that we use throughout this series, we use based on some of the ones in this book. They were great and they're incredible. The third book, and this one has been around for quite a while, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's in its fourth edition. If you are just looking for a resource to say, I want to begin reading the Bible, but I need help understanding the context. Instead of buying a different commentary for every book of the Bible, this one's great. It gives you some generic info about the Bible, but then it tells you, okay, when you get to the wisdom and poetry books, here's how you read them. When you get to the gospels, here's how you read them. When you get to the epistles, here's how you read them. And it is really, really helpful for just understanding how to read the Bible. It has a lot more detail when we talked about translations. You can find that in there as well. It also talks a little bit about how we got the canon of scripture. You can find that in there as well. Fourth one is this one. Can we trust the gospels? This one is fascinating. This one is a little more academic, and I'll move out of the way. Some of you guys are trying to take pictures. Uh, this one is a little more academic than some of the other ones. And it's fascinating, though, because in a, just a couple hundred pages, this author tells you, without a doubt, yes, you can trust the Gospels. And it's fascinating, because he goes into detail of saying, when the Gospels were written, he, he tracks through history the most popular names through the centuries of Israelite history, and tells you that if the Gospels were written 200 years later, here's the names they would have used. But here's the names they use. And he tells you these names are in here because it's just fascinating how much detail he has in just a couple hundred pages about how accurate the gospels really are. Why just the gospels? Because the hinge of Christianity is in those four books. If you understand the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, it makes sense. I've got two more. These are a little more academic for those of you that are like, hey, I wanna go really, really deep. Each one of these is closer to about 1,000 pages, each one, and they are like full of Greek words and all kinds of stuff. I wanna share it with you. The first one is Jesus and the eyewitnesses. It's all about the gospels and how the original authors were eyewitnesses to what they saw. And then this last one is really fascinating, the historical reliability of the New Testament countering the challenges to evangelical Christian beliefs. It is all about how the Bible is reliable as a book. 
And it is like deep and complex, but fascinating. If you're like, man, I just really wanna dive deep, I would recommend that one to start with as a good starting point. Make sense? One other resource. Maybe you're here and you've been here this whole series and you're like, man, I didn't realize there was this much about the Bible. How do I get started? I just wanna let you know, on your way out today, at all of our doors, we've got Bibles for you for free. If you don't have one, just grab one. It's the NIV version, it's the one we use on stage a lot along with the other ones, but it's the one that predominantly we use. We just wanna give you a copy of God's word for you to begin reading. If you download our Mount app, you can find our um, reading plan that we started last Wednesday and it takes us all the way to Easter. We would love for you to grab a Bible and to begin reading with us as we learn about the story of Jesus and his life and his ministry leading up the final week to his resurrection. And so, as we close out this series, um, I wanna do something a little different. We've talked a lot about the Bible, a lot about the, the facts and the figures, and I just wanna close with this. Would you just stand with me? And I wanna read, um, this is a prayer written by Puritans about 400 years ago about their thankfulness for the word of God. And I just wanna close our series with this. It says, O God of truth, I thank you for the holy scriptures, their precepts, their promises, their directions, and their light. In them may I learn more of Christ, have grace to follow it and retain his truth. Help me to lift up the gates of my soul that he may come in and show me himself when I search the scriptures for I have no lines to fathom its depths nor wings to soar to its heights. By his aid, may I be enabled to explore all its truths. Love them with all my heart, embrace them with all my power and engraft them into my very soul. Bless to my soul every grain of truth that is found in the word. May they take deep root. May I be refreshed by heavenly dew and ripened by heavenly rays, be harvested to my joy and your praise. Help me to gain profit by what I read, a treasure beyond all treasure, a fountain which can replenish my dry heart. The scripture's waters flow through me as a river drawn by the Holy Spirit. Enable me to distill from its pages faithfulness. Help me to grasp your omnipotence, your wonders, your blessings and your mercy. From it, show me how my words have often been unfaithful, injurious to my fellow men, empty of grace, full of folly, dishonoring. Then write your own words upon my heart, inscribe them on my lips, so shall all glory be to you when I read your word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, for the way you have supplied it to us to live our lives. We have everything we need in it. God, you are amazing and your word, we wanna be people of your word, people who devour it, people who, who eat it, who, who can't get enough of it, who, whose soul thirsts for it, who are, who are famished until we hear from you that day, that morning and that night. God, we are thankful for your word.